Hey there. Welcome. Thank you for joining me tonight at Dharma Punks, New York City. Couple announcements. On uh, Monday through Friday mornings at 8 a.m., join Kathy for her morning meditations. And the information is in the website, dharmapunksnyc.com. On the 25th of June, I believe, is our next gathering at Center Yoga on 23rd Street, Sunday, June 25th. So that will be from 2 to 5 p.m. And um, on August 31st, we'll be having our uh, four-day residential retreat at Garrison Institute. Uh, last year was really wonderful, a lot of fun. So yeah, once again, Dharma Punks NYC, you can find out about uh, upcoming gathering in Philadelphia on the 17th, the the gathering in person in New York as well on the 25th, the, uh, and the retreat at Garrison Institute. And if you'd like to support my work, which would be really nice, so I could keep going as a Buddhist pastor. Um, the Venmo is Dharma Punks with an X NYC. And really, I don't ever charge for anything I do. So it's all supported by donations. And um, the PayPal is Dharma Punks NYC. And the, sorry, that's the, the Patreon and the PayPal is on the website as well. So tonight, in Dharma, right effort is of central import that calls for ongoing awareness of our mind states. Right effort is the attempt to prevent thoughts and mental attitudes that cause suffering from taking control of our, our attention. And conversely, we're in, to endeavor to cultivate skillful and wholesome thoughts such as compassion and generosity and kindness. Right effort is a kind of mindfulness or self-awareness practice we are asked to do all the time. It's kind of the meditation we do throughout our life, even when we're not sitting on a cushion or it's just this ongoing awareness of are my thoughts how I'm thinking right now making my mood better or worse? Am I causing more conflict or less conflict in my life? Right effort. Our mindfulness of thinking is known as metacognition, the ability to think about our thinking, to understand the implications of how we frame our experience to ourselves and others. All of cognitive behavioral therapy Metacognition and right effort in Buddhism is based on the principle that our moods and our thought or our thinking are linked. If you change one, you'll change the other. Now, from the perspective of moods changing how we think, you could look at the work of Antonio the Greats, Antonio Damasio, Jack Pantsep, uh, Richard Davidson, large meta-analysis like the effect of control of thought by Hunsinger et al., um, that demonstrate what's called mood congruence, which is our what our underlying moods are very often. Like if I wake up anxious, then I'll think worrying thoughts. If I wake up in a, a relaxed state, then I'm more likely to think positive thoughts. And one wonderful study showed that if you put people in slightly uncomfortable chairs and they're not aware of that, they're more likely to frame their relationships and their life negatively. But if you put them in really comfortable chairs and ask them about their relationships and their lives, then they're more likely to say positive things. Our moods can change how we think, but the vice versa is true as well. In cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, wonderful studies like the relationship between thinking and mood and daily life show that the way we think about our lives and the events of our days influence our mood and exacerbates anxiety or depression. Cognitive behavioral therapy and, and all of right effort in Buddhism rests on the idea that 
if we are aware of how we think, we can change how we think and actually then change suffering, how much stress, how much anxiety, how much depression. Students who fail their midterms in college, the likelihood of them going on to either pass or fail the course depended upon how they thought about failing the midterm, how they framed the experience. Viewpoint has vital uh, influence on our life. If you meet someone new, you try a new cuisine, you visit a different neighborhood or city, all of these interactions will form initial impressions. And these initial impressions will forge our sauna perceptions. So for example, you go to a new neighborhood uh, or you try out a new cuisine and you initially in that first interaction, you might think, oh, the vibe here is really relaxed. I like the taste of this food or I don't like the taste of this food. It doesn't really suit my palate or whatever. And just on that one meal or that one short visit to a new neighborhood will make these sweeping judgments. And these judgments have enormous influence in the future about whether we will try that cuisine, that neighborhood, like or interact with that person in the future. So clearly the the way we frame the experience leads to countless decisions in the future, whether we'll engage with something or whether we'll not. As the Buddha noted, these rudimentary impressions that create points of view, sana, perceptions, can turn into these very rigid limitations that we cling to and will form as obstacles in our openness to places or people we've only met once and just made these initial judgments. But to really dive deeper into the influence of thinking on suffering, probably the best uh, place to start, the psychologist Albert Ellis amongst the 10 most influential American psychotherapists. He was one of the founders of cognitive behavioral therapy, also rational therapy. And he was above and beyond a humanist theramist, therapist. Humanist means he was interested in individuals, treating each individual as unique. Albert Ellis believed that the way we interpret the experiences in our lives played an essential role in how much emotional suffering we went on to experience. Uh, he developed what's called the ABC model, which basically A stands for the activating or adverse experience in life. So you're walking down the street, you see your friend, you smile and wave, and uh, they don't smile and wave back. They don't even acknowledge you. B is the belief or how you interpret that experience. So you might interpret it as, well, that that's terrible. This is my friend. I I smiled, I waved, I often you know call them up and they don't even respond to my gesture. And C is the consequence of that experience, which was we might get frustrated, disappointed, even angered by that exchange where we saw a friend, we smiled, they didn't smile back and wave, and we felt uh, neglected. But what Albert Ellis said is that most of us think that the suffering comes in the experience, the waving to someone and having them not wave back. But he argued that actually the suffering comes from the interpretation that if instead of interpreting it as, oh, my, this friend of so-called friend of mine didn't wave and smile and acknowledge me, if we instead interpreted that interaction as, oh, uh, that my friend's busy, lost in thought, didn't even notice me, uh, they must have a lot going on. If we add that interpretation, then there's no suffering that results. Another example is someone who gets uh, suddenly ghosted or dumped after a few dates. And then if they're 
interpretation is, well, there must be something wrong with me. Why else did they reject me? Um, then there's a lot of suffering. But on the other hand, if we interpret getting ghosted or dumped in a relationship, we might just say, well, clearly they are incompatible. Uh, I'll find someone, they'll find someone, has nothing to do with me. Then there's no suffering in the experience. So what Albert Ellis argues, and this is deeply influential on cognitive behavioral therapy and metacognition and Buddhist thought as well, because the Buddha argued the same, is that the suffering is not so much in the event, it's actually in the way we interpret the event. And that if we change the way we interpret experiences in life, then we change how our moods. Quite literally, in the Dharma, the first noble truth is basically shit happens. We experience old age, sickness, death, separation from people we care about. We get stuck with people we don't particularly like. We don't get the things we want, so on and so forth. Buddha says, though, if it wasn't for the fact that we take it personally, that we try to resist it, and we think that there's something wrong about life, then we wouldn't suffer so much if we just accepted, hey, that's a part of life. It's not really about me. Then there wouldn't be suffering. So in cognitive therapies and in metacognition, there's a lot of emphasis on being aware of constantly how we're interpreting our experience on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, how we appraise um, uh, and noticing whether our interpretations or the way we, we think about each event in our life, whether the thoughts become intrusive and repetitive and stressful, or whether the experience just then over time uh, dissipates and there's very little suffering in its wake. So let's look at some of the Albert Ellis made a list, a helpful list of what he called irrational beliefs that always cause suffering. And we'll talk, we'll take a, about four of them and we'll show how we can then develop new thoughts. Uh, it's known in cognitive behavioral therapy as restructure, cognitive restructuring or rescripting, where we take thoughts in our that we're thinking that are causing us suffer, suffering, and we literally practice thinking in different ways so that we experience less suffering. So, for example, um, one irrational belief that Ella, Albert Ellis said always causes suffering is the idea that we need to be approved by everyone in our friend group or in our community or our circle of acquaintances, that it's important to be loved or approved, that, uh, that if people, if someone doesn't like us or is judgmental about us, that it means something wrong is happening, that we've done something that needs to be addressed, and so forth. And uh, as Albert Ellis points out, frankly, there no one is universally popular. And if we strive to become universally popular, um, what will happen is we'll become wildly inauthentic. <laughs> because the only way, if you look at what happens when with large television networks who try to reach the widest possible audience without offending anyone, is all of their programming becomes inauthentic and crap. <laughs> it's only when people are authentic and at times are willing to uh, be, be honest and disclosing, and at times people won't like that. Obviously, if more of our friends are than, than others are disliking or finding is problematic, that's an issue. But if they're simply now and then um, 
things that occur that are that you know we see we are with a group of friends and one person doesn't seem to like us or respond to us it doesn't mean that we have to change our behavior or change the topic of conversation or anything like that necessarily and one way to reframe it when we get obsessed after we go out with a group of friends and most people like us uh but one person seems to be sullen or just disagreeable or confrontational with us is to one reflect on all the people that uh, we did have a positive interaction with to focus attention on is it better to would it really be better for me to simply drop and become self-conscious and try to to figure out how to make everyone like me all the time doesn't that sound stressful in and of itself um, another core irrational belief is the idea that we have to be seen as competent in everything we do and that we shouldn't do activities that we're not competent with. So, for example, if you can't carry a tune, you're not allowed to sing. If you can't play an instrument well, you shouldn't pick it up and strum it or tinkle on it. If you are not very good with sports, you shouldn't go out and uh, try to play basketball. Um, all this does, of course, is keeps us from trying anything new because in anything new, we're not going to be very good at it. And one, and, and it also is liberating to fail. And in fact, there's nothing more joyful than singing aloud, even if you don't have a great voice, because singing deeply allows us to express emotions in a way that uh, we can't otherwise. It shows that we're human. And for me, one way I've always gotten around this concern with um, being uh, totally an expert in any endeavor was reminding myself how much I loved not only all the punk rock groups of the 70s when they came out, none of them could play their instruments, yet it sounded great and authentic and really truthful and endemic of something deeper than music that was very you know smooth and effortless i would invariably rather listen at times to um the charred vocals of a tom waits than the smooth middle of the road <laughs> vocals of a Celine Dion. Yeah, not everyone will agree with me, but hey, that's uh, that's fine. Um, shoulds and expectations almost invariably cause suffering. These inflexible dogmatic beliefs signaled by I should uh, visit home more often. I should uh, uh, connect with my family i should x y and z um i should be more successful uh than i am i should be married with children by now i should own a house by now all of these shoulds of course as we well know we should all over ourselves. um would we one way to reflect on this is uh would we ever tell anyone else this would you ever go up to anyone else in your life and say well you know you should be doing better than you are you should be more successful you should be by now uh you know paying off your mortgage in your house rather than looking for a rental you should be uh you should be further down the path of your career you if you wouldn't say it to anyone else why in uh from any perspective is it uh worthwhile to tell it to ourselves we should hopefully there i use those using should but it is essential that we treat us ourselves as well as we treat any friend by not saying to ourselves anything that we would never say to anyone else if um 
we would never allow ourselves to say the things that we say to ourselves in our heads, then we should refocus instead on all of the things that we've accomplished despite the obstacles and the stresses that we've experienced in life. Um, catastrophizing uh, finally is the idea that it's useful to keep in mind the worst positive outcome of any situation that'll somehow keep us prepared. Uh, and it's worthwhile to reflect one, all it does is never really prepare us. It just keeps us worried and miserable when there's any unresolved issue in our life. And a key practice from any cognitive or Buddhist would be, um, would my life be better? Wouldn't it be better if I couldn't uh, catastrophize, if I couldn't visualize the worst positive, uh, possible outcome? Has it ever really in the past protected me? Now, from a Buddhist perspective, some of the core rational beliefs that the Buddha notes throughout the Dharma is, one, taking things personally, um, mistaking universal experiences like uh, old age, sickness, separation from people we love, um, not always getting what we want, um, not always being popular, all of these uh universal experiences, taking them personally, as if I am unique in the fact that I've gone through a breakup or have struggled in relationships or um, I'm unique because I'm going bald uh, or I'm unique because I'm, I have a uh, pot belly, or I'm unique because I um, uh, have whatever I'm. I get anxious. None of these are not only are in any way unique; they are rather universal experiences. And when we remove the sense of this is about me, uh, as we'll see in a few moments, it significantly diminishes the amount of suffering in our life. If we just go around and share something that we're dealing with and someone else goes, oh yeah, I deal with that issue all the time. Suddenly the weight, the sense of, of culpability and the sense of failure is almost immediately lifted. Another um, cognitive distortion that causes suffering is adding any sense that difficult experiences are permanent or lasting. And as, of course, a key concept in the Buddhist, in Buddhist practice is that um, not only do all things and all situations pass, but even the way we feel about situations changes constantly if we really observe it. And a simple way to dispel this cognitive distortion that causes so much suffering is just to reflect on challenges we thought were overwhelming or immutable two years ago. And quite frankly, I doubt you can even remember the issues that were, uh, well, I guess two years ago, the middle of the pandemic, so we can answer that one. But, you know, ask yourself five years ago in 2018, what were the issues that uh, in the summer of 2018 were uh, most concerning? And it will probably take you a lot of effort, a lot of time to remember it. And the way you feel about it has almost certainly changed. So, um, and then a third issue of that the Buddha said, a uh, misconception that causes suffering is craving. The idea that there's something out there that we don't have, that if we get it, will permanently make our life easier, free of suffering. And that's easy enough to dispel. Just remember the last thing in your life or some of the things in your life you really craved and, you know, really focused attention on getting and achieving and accomplishing. And then ask ourselves, was all of my stress magically removed? One wonderful Buddhist teacher, um, Ajahn Brahm, 
uh, jokingly talked about the time that he was uh, teaching in um, a monk in Thailand and everybody he met with was constantly fixated on the fact that they weren't married and how much better their life would be once they became married. He wound up uh, moving to Australia and starting a monastery there, became a successful monk. And then when he traveled back to Thailand, like 10 years later, everybody was married. And yet they were just complaining just as much. No one's marriage or anything else in their life had reduced their stress. Uh, none of the big changes that they craved resulted in a reduction of suffering. So um, if we want to though, go to the epicenter of where both metacognition, being aware of how we're thinking, where it is most influential, where we can make the greatest single reduction in the amount of stress and suffering in our life, is found in the Sabhasava Sutta in Buddhism. And I'm going to talk about it first from a Buddhist perspective and then from a cognitive, behavioral, and a clinical perspective, which is the Buddha teaches what ideas are unfit for attention. And then he goes on to say something like, when one thinks inappropriately, one wonders, what, would, what happened to me in the past? What will happen to me in the future? When we build views about ourselves, it leads to the belief um, that uh, our problems will never change. It creates what he called a thicket of views, a wilderness of views, contorted thoughts and opinions that become a bondage. As a result, he said, the run-of-the-mill mind experiences sorrow, lamentation, grief, despair, simply by thinking about themselves. And then he goes on to say, well, what thoughts are appropriate for attention? And he says, just focus attention on what's happening right now. And rather than thinking about oneself, simply ask right now, what is stressful? What's causing agitation? What am I resisting or clinging to? What can I let go of to experience less stress? So the fundamental uh, insight that is throughout the Dhamma is that um, uh, clinging to thoughts about ourselves, um, not sila upadana, atava upadana, thinking about oneself, is one of the greatest causes of suffering. You see, there's four primary cognitive operations of our frontal lobes that we can talk about. The most basic is the salience network, which shifts our attention to new stimuli that uh, keeps our attention fluid and flexible so we can drop something and look when somebody talks to us or if there's a sudden uh, phone call or if something, someone walks into a room, we can drop what we're doing and pay attention. So that's pretty not just un unique to humans. That's in most mammals and reptiles and such. They can drop and refocus attention. Human beings are pretty good in that we use our anterior cingulate and our ventral anterior insula signal, sing, uh, uh, region of the brain to sustain attention, focus on it, uh, figure out what's going on, then we can move to something else. Another network we have is task positive network where we can focus attention on something we're doing with our hands, uh, something that's happening right here and right now that requires immersive attention. So whether you're one of those people who likes to tinker on engines or likes to uh, do tricks on your skateboard, likes like me to pick up the piano or well, I don't pick up the piano I play the piano I pick up the saxophone and I play that or uh, whether you're someone who likes to do 
uh, gardening or cooking or embroidery or woodworking or whatever, anything you do with your hands that focuses your attention is task positive network. And the third uh, principle cognitive operation is executive control. When we are thinking about something that requires a lot of problem solving and we're engaged in long-term planning, figuring out like how we're going to deal with some issue in the future. I want to travel to X, Y, and Z. How will I afford it? So on and so forth. Now, all three of these networks in and of themselves will cause you little, if any, suffering in your life while you're doing it. I mean, salience network moving from one thing to another at worst you'll experience shock if you see something disturbing task positive when you're focusing attention on what you're doing to your hand is associated with flow states and most people find it very pleasurable it reduces anxiety uh executive control network when you're problem solving it will just be absorbing and but it won't cause the frontal parietal networks don't have much influence on your amygdala the fear survival center of your brain but there is one network that we didn't mention that causes almost the bulk of our stress and suffering and that's the good old default mode network which is the ventral medial region of the brain it's associated with when we're not focusing attention with what we're doing we're not paying attention to the present so we're neither in salience network nor task positive and we're not focusing on problems or issues that don't involve ourselves. instead what we're doing is we're engaging in self-oriented speculation what's going to happen to me in the future or what happened to me in the past exactly what the buddha talked about and as a wonderful study, the famous Harvard study with over 2,000 individuals called A Wandering Mind is an Unhappy Mind, it turns out that when people are not paying attention to what they're doing, they're not thinking about problem solving, but they're lost in thought about themselves is when people are most unhappy in their life. In fact, I like to say that realistically from the study it's likely that if i'm lying on the beach with uh, the sun and the waves lapping but i'm lost in thought about what might happen to me in the future or why did someone say x y or z to me in the past i'll likely experience more suffering than if i'm uh in a dentist chair getting a te my teeth cleaned because at least i'm paying attention to the sounds the sights i'm not lost in thought about myself default mode networks and autobiographical thought go hand in hand and pet scans show that this kind of introspective thought about one introspective thought about sorry introspective uh, thought about oneself activates not only the medial regions, the central regions of the brain, but has direct axonic linkage with your amygdala. It activates your stress response hardware. And this is because generally in the past, when people's thoughts wandered to what might happen to the, themselves in the future, the likelihood is they were going to catastrophize and think about all the different possible ways that threats could arise, that things out of their control could happen. You might remember that at the beginning of this, the tonight's talk, I noted that students who fail their midterm um, uh, tests, depending upon how they thought about it, would either pass or fail the ultimate course well it turns out the significant difference is that students who blame themselves for failing the test almost invariably wound up failing the course but students who after failing a midterm just said well uh the textbook wasn't that good uh 
if I had had more sleep, I would have passed it. If I, you know, if the teacher was better, if they don't blame themselves, if they don't take it personally, then they would wind up and pass the course. So the salient issue, not only with suffering, but also with behavioral outcomes, was whether we turn life experience into a story about ourselves. Um, default mode operation narrows attention again and again to ruminating stressful thoughts about ourselves. One study proposes that default mode chatter can occur at a rate equivalent to saying 4,000 words a minute. That's how overcharged and intrusive the thoughts can become. Um, somebody said it's the equivalent of you can write four novels a day if you get lost in default mode network about yourself. Um it invariably involves compulsively rehashing past events in rumination or anxiously producing future events, as in worry. So the way out is either one, to use any of the other three networks to especially task-oriented processing. When we use lateral networks of the brain to pay attention to what we're doing with our hands, to do anything that's in the present that focuses our attention externally, almost like um, miraculously, the stress and the suffering diminishes. Engaged activity reduces self-other thought. Um, which is why culturally dominant approaches to battling inner voice rumination almost invariably breaks down to distraction. We are happier, and this is a not very Buddhist thing to say, but we are generally happier than when we're busy, creative, engaging in absorbing tasks than when we are sitting around on our hands idle, allowing our thoughts to go wherever. So, key practice is to take the mind out of, to note when we're lost in thought about ourselves, about what, uh, where we should be, what could happen to us, what happened to us in the past, to either bring our attention to a problem that doesn't involve me specifically, just as an idle thought experiment. How would I... Uh, address uh, or or talk to people about climate change or how could I be if or how what would be a good way for people to address climate change I, I want to take myself out of it so uh, any or any kind of problem solving what would be a good way to solve this issue in the world what would be a good thing if everybody did what would or uh do something that focuses attention on whether or not our thoughts right now, how they're contributing to stress or contributing to well-being. So the fourth uh, practice in mindfulness and the key to right effort in Buddhism is ongoing awareness of our thoughts. So tonight we're going to do a meditation that's not focused entirely on the breath or the body or sounds, although it will start with that, but we're actually going to do a meditation on mindfulness of thinking. So thanks for listening to the talk. Hope something in there was worth your reflection. And now what I'd like to encourage you to do is to find a really comfortable position, whether you're seated or lying down on a couch it's all good. And don't feel that you have to keep yourself on camera. You can turn off your video or face it away from yourself so that you can uh, not be self-conscious while you meditate. And once you find a comfortable position, close your eyes.
and bring your attention to the sensations in your body. And just find the sensations occurring near the toes of your feet, as if toes would be anywhere else. And just find those sensations. And then become aware of what it's like to be in the soles of your feet just filling the soles of your feet with awareness. And if anything could be relaxed, that would be appropriate. If you'd like to stretch your toes or arch your feet and relax, that's fine bringing attention to the sensations and the soles, heel, ankle. What we're going to do is we're going to just slowly bring awareness up the body. The goal is to really become aware of all the different body sensations that are going on beneath the level of awareness and just reconnect with the body that is not only keeping us alive, but is also allowing us to move through the world to sustain ourselves, to connect with others, just reconnecting, becoming re-embodied, noticing the sensations of the calves. And then, of course, feeling encouraged to release any tension there. Moving up to the kneecaps. How do they feel right now? And just continue up thighs, buttocks. The goal is to re-experience the body as spacious. So many different rooms to explore. And also use the practice as a way to address any held tension. So if, for example, when you are feeling the sensations of your belly, you notice a tendency to keep your abdomen held tightly, contracted, Use this as a time to just soften the belly, release, just let go of any felt need to present, tighten, contract. If you notice the chest feels a little tight, that the in-breath doesn't feel spacious, just you can rotate your shoulders around and drop them back. Let your arms hang loosely so that there's more space 
more room for the breath to fill the lungs. Notice how spacious the torso can be and all the different way the breath can move up from the abdomen to the chest with the in-breath and then release becoming aware of the sensations of the arms. All the way down the forearms, to the elbows, to the hands, the fingers. So many different compartments of the body we so little or infrequently check in with. It's almost as if we live in a house with all our minds and we never go down into the basement and just check out all the different rooms and spaces and what's going on. You no, know, everything rests on this foundation where always up on the second floor of the house. And then bringing attention to the neck and eventually the sensations and spaciousness of the head itself The movement of the jaw. Any movement in the nose, nostrils, whether the eyes are flickering behind closed eyelids. And just staying with this embodied state for a while. So we're just going to bring our attention back again and again to all the sensations of our embodied experience. Every time the mind wanders, just bring it back and rest somewhere in your body. Use this time as a way to relax anything that's tight, contracted. And if still the body feels a little claustrophobic or difficult to inhabit, then you can include all the sounds going on around you. Don't visualize what causes the sounds. Just be with the sounds and the body sensations. Just this practice is a wonderful anchor to when our thoughts are intrusive to give us an escape hatch. The challenge is if we wait until our thoughts are most stressful, intrusive, threatening, if we don't have a practice in place where we've developed the skill of noting when we're not embodied and bringing our attention back, then when we are actually freaking out, as it were, or lost in distressing ruminations, it will be very difficult to pull our attention away. This is how we practice. So we'll just sit for a little while in silence, and then I'll return and lead the mindfulness of thought practice.
So to enter into our mindfulness of thinking, a traditional way is to first, like we're observing sensations in the body and sounds as they arrive, just open the experience to just notice when thoughts, new thoughts, appear, oddly, sometimes we'll find that while it seems like all the time our thoughts are following us around and self-generating quite freely, that when we bring attention, a metacognitive attention, to what kind of thoughts are present. Just not getting involved with the thought, but just observing as it arises and passes without adding any more fuel to it. When we try to step back, then suddenly the thoughts don't occur. The mind suddenly becomes quiet for a little while. But then we forget that we're observing, and then we'll get lost in a thought. So the practice then is just to note, okay, what thought grabbed hold of me and took me away from just being aware, but standing back from getting lost in the thought's virtual reality? It's a little like metacognition and mindfulness of thoughts. It's a little like when you're in a movie theater, but you're no longer looking at the movie as if it's, we're not lost in the movie anymore. You're sitting back remembering it's just something being projected onto a screen that's not really happening right now, and you look around the movie theater, you see other people in the audience. So it's that willingness to step outside of the movie that we get entranced by in our minds and just view it for what it is, just a, some images and skeletal ideas appearing in the mind. So we're just bringing attention to this kind of stance away from getting lost in thoughts, identifying, believing them, living in them. Now we're just observing them. Thoughts just become things occurring above us in the mind and we're our center of our sense of where we are is lower in the body. So at this point, for an additional practice, 
mindfulness of thoughts, metacognition, what I'd like you to do is bring to mind a thought that sometimes intrudes that you know isn't entirely pleasant. Maybe a thought that keeps you up at night or something that is a real unpleasant visitor in our minds. Generally, it would be about yourself ruminating on a past event or worrying about a possible future. And whatever it is, just know what starts happening to your body, your breathing, when this thought is invited. What happens in our belly, in our chest, You might notice that if we welcome the thought rather than trying to suppress it, that it's less critical, less compelling. That simply inviting a thought rather than fighting with it, believing it or arguing with it, just allowing it to arise, changes the way we experience this thought. And you hold this thought in mind, maybe it's something like, I should have done something different or what's going to happen to me in the future or why did I do X, Y, or Z or whatever it is, something that someone said to us. Just... Ask, how else could I frame, think about this event, this from the past or this future? Maybe I could remove the sense of there's something uniquely about me that pretty much everyone struggles with this that we're all in this together, that I'm not alone in this concern. Maybe it's just reflecting, as the Buddha noted, that a year from now I'll be worrying about something else. Again, just note how when we welcome rather than resist I thought it becomes less sticky, even sometimes difficult to even keep it around when, on the other hand, when it ambushes us and we resist it, we can struggle with it at 4 a.m. until 5 a.m. If you want to get a little distance from a thought, just always ask, how does my belly feel right now while this thought is occurring? Just lower your, expand your awareness down into your body again and again. How does my belly feel right now? The moment we bring the body back in, the thought becomes less sticky, less intrusive easier to disidentify with.
And see what happens if you really relax your body. You breathe out longer, slower. Does that make it easier to be with the thought without feeling trapped? All of these are the type of questions we could be asking throughout each day, each night, whenever we find ourselves lost in a thought. And notably, at the same time, our mood has plummeted. Bring the attention to whatever we're thinking. Relax the body. Welcome, but step outside of the thought. Reframe it. Is this really only about me? Is this not going to change? Would I ever say this thought to anyone else? So at this point, I'm going to bring the meditation to a close.